together and worship together in spirit and truth and, and to realize that God is good and he's good all the time, right? And, uh, and trust in him. Well, I, t I trust as well that, that our hearts are refreshed through our worship experience as we worship together and we'll be once again looking at several scriptures uh, through the message as well and we'll try to go slow enough for everyone to be able to pick those scriptures up, especially those who are viewing at home. Uh, but anyway, we're we're glad you're here and glad each one is tuning in. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the time that you allow us to worship together and to be able to be still and know that you're God and to recognize your presence and to recognize your power and your might. And we look to you because we know all, all praise and thanksgiving is unto you. And may our hearts be pointed heavenward and may our hearts be connected in such a way that we understand uh, the challenges you give us each and every day to be your servants obedient unto you. Again, thank you for loving us. Thank you for your care and thank you for your provision. In your name that we pray, amen. amen. There's a river of gladness Pours from Emmanuel's veins. The sinner was plunged beneath the flood and got saved. 
Since then I walked in forgiveness All of my guilt was erased The chains of the past are broken at last I got saved, oh I got saved I'm undone by the mercy of Jesus I'm undone by the goodness of the Lord he got a hold of my life I got Jesus I could I want more I've received nothing but goodness I've tested and tasted your grace I was so lost till I fell at the cross And got saved Oh, I got saved I'm undone by the mercy of Jesus. I'm undone by the goodness of the Lord. I'm restored and made right. He got a hold of my life. I got Jesus. I could I want more? The love of God gave me His power. Yeah, the love of God. Stay the, same. stay the same. The love of God pulls me up higher. His love is stronger. That's why I got saved. I'm undone by the mercy of Jesus. I'm undone by the goodness of the Lord. I'm restored and made right. You got a hold of my life. I got Jesus. Could I want more? I'm restored and made right. You got a hold of my life. I got Jesus. Could I want more? I got Jesus. Could I want Today I want to speak with you about obedience, and it's one of those areas in our own lives that we understand the concept of obedience. We understand it as, as adults, as human beings, as children, as youth, we understand what obedience means as applied to our life, but we may not understand its definition of what true obedience is when it comes to our faith walk uh, with the Lord God. So the title of this message this morning is When Obedience Matters. And I'm using the text out of Acts chapter 5 uh, as a beginning point of the message, beginning in verse 21 and going through verse 32 to kind of give it its context of what's going on and how the disciples themselves handled being obedient and being uh, ch challenged in the, in the face of all that they're going through, being obedient through those challenges to serve the Lord in, in their walk of life. Now, we're always challenged every day, whether we realize it or not, we're challenged to be obedient or to be disobedient. And you and I together must choose that. Every day when we arise, is this going to be a day of obedience and every 
part of the day is it going to be in obedience or will we veer from the path and find ourselves as being disobedient? Whether it's through action, uh, whether it's through our thoughts, whether it's through um, you know, conversation with someone, it's one of those areas that we will always have to struggle with or succeed in throughout our lifetime. From the moment we're birthed into this world to the moment that we breathe our last. And so let's think about when obedience matters. And in Acts chapter 5, verse 21, the latter part of verse 21, but I'll just begin at 21 and reading through uh, verse 32, with the focus, focal verse is actually verse 29 of that chapter. So beginning in verse 21, it says this, In obedience to this, they entered the temple complex at daybreak and they began to teach. Now we could probably stop there because you, you see in obedience, it starts off in obedience. Okay, so what are they being obedient to? We'll get into that in just a moment. When the high priest and those who were with him arrived, they convened the Sanhedrin, the full senate of the sons of Israel, 70 religious righteous persons, the men were brought together, because it was a men's, man's world during that time, brought together, and that's the Sanhedrin. Okay. They sent orders to the jail to have them brought. But when the temple police got there, they did not find them in the jail. They returned and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing in front of the doors, dumbfounded and confused. I'm going to add that. <laughs> but when they opened them, we found no one inside. Now, they were locked up. All of a sudden, they disappeared. Okay, keep that in mind. And then it goes on to say, as the captain of the temple police and the chief priests heard these things, they were baffled about them. There you go. They were dumbfounded. They were totally confused. They're baffled. As, they, as to what would come of this. Someone came and reported them, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple complex and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the temple police and brought them in without force because they were afraid that the people might stone them. Yeah, because a miracle happened and they were in one place and they appeared somewhere else. So, yeah, they're, they're scared to touch him now. All right. But it goes back to what the disciples were doing is they were being obedient to God, and God took care of the rest. When they had brought them in, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin, and the high priest asked, Didn't we strictly order you not to teach in his name or in this name? And look. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you have murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to the right hand as a ruler and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. 
We are right. We are witnesses of these things. So this is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. All right, so we see the context is the disciples were creating a stir because they were continuing, continuing to preach Christ and they were continuing to spread Christianity as people were, their hearts were open to, to this Messiah and open to the Holy Spirit's work in their life. People were still coming to Christ every day. And the Sanhedrin, who were the righteous group, who felt threatened that the Orthodox Judaism is at stake here, wanted to stop the Christianity and stop this nonsense, they thought. So they put them in jail. And while putting them in jail, put a guard in front of them. And as a result, automatically, boom, yow. <laughs> they, they're no longer in jail. They're inside the temple complex. There's nothing in Scripture that indicates how they got out of jail other than the fact that God moved them from one spot to the other. You know, Jesus did that. He knew how to walk through walls and he knew how to appear on the seashore of people's lives in his resurrected form. He could appear in different places. God was at work determined that those who were obedient to him, he would take care of the surroundings around them. And so they continued to preach and they began to be questioned. And the key in this whole passage is that they stood there before the Sanhedrin of those group of 70 righteous men as they thought they were and they said, we are here to obey God rather than you. It's basically what he said. You can shut us down and put us in prison, but we're going to appear somewhere else. We've already proved it. God's already proved it. And so what mattered to them was not the jail cell or what men were saying about them. What mattered to them was their obedience to God. And so when it comes to obedience, how do you define it? When it comes to obedience, how do you define obedience? Now, quickly, we always want to move in this direction in its definition. It's easy to define obedience as doing the right thing because we think about our actions. If we're obedient, we're, we're in the process of doing the right thing. It's about action. But I want to challenge you to think that it really has nothing to do about action. It has all to do about the attitude and the character of the heart. When we're talking about obedience unto God, it really has nothing to do with action. It begins with the attitude and the character of heart. Now, what, I, what do I mean by that? If it's all about obedience, then there are a lot of good, righteous people in this world, and if that's all it is, they're not bound for heaven. But when you put the fact of one's faith and trust and, and, and relationship to God in there, it has to do with the matter of the heart first. And from the attitude and the character of the heart, we therefore respond and we reply from the faith that we have. And as a result from that attitude and character, we begin to do the right thing. So obedience to God is not about doing the right thing. There's a lot of people who can do the right thing and spend their eternity in hell. But those who have give, given their life and heart to the Lord God 
knows the difference and understands you know the difference. And as a result, your love, your devotion, your allegiance to God, therefore, as a result of that, your heart being made right with God first, you therefore then move forward in action. And you do the right thing. And so obedience is all about the attitude and the character of heart. Now, let me, let me focus on the th three things that we're conditioned from the time that we understand life in itself. Let's think about this for just a moment. All right, let's use the marriage example. Let's talk about obedience. All right, when a couple stands before one another at the altar, many times today you don't hear the word obedience and you don't hear the word submission. But I chuckle when I hear brides and grooms tell me, I don't mind any vows you choose but leave out the word obedience. Well, I don't know if I've ever used that, but one time in all the marriages that I've had, just because it's the idea of the word obedient or the word submission. Those two terms seem to create a little bit of friction in the heart of spouses. But I chuckle because even though a spouse will not want to say, I will obey you, I chuckle because once they're married, they begin to obey one another and they begin to submit to one another. You see, it's not about action. It's about the heart. It's about the character of the person. And when you're committed to that spouse, he or she, you're committed to them, then what begins to happen before you realize it, if you look back over your lifetime of, that you spent together already, you will, you will conclude, yes, I obey my wife and my wife obeys me. It's just the natural tendency. Even though we may not say it, we do it and we practice it. And if that's not the case, then try not obeying your spouse and see what happens. <laughs> or submitting. All right, think of another example. Let's think of a child. It's so, it's so neat to watch the little small children. And now that we reintroduce the small children in our home with our grandchildren, and they're now starting to walk, you know, and they got the hands out trying to balance themselves, and then they plop down, you know, when they can't stand any longer. But now they're reaching for, for things, reaching for maybe a sharp object, or going into the kitchen and trying to reach for the little dog bowl when, the, when Cooper's over at the house. And, and, you know, we're saying no, no, no. No, already we're conditioning the child as we have conditioned the marriage partners that obedience is about action. It's about doing the right thing. And so when you say no, you're saying to them that there's an alternative, even though they can't reason with that as a child, they, we know that there's an alternative if you don't take of that in your hand there is a better alternative that's going to keep you safe. So from the very beginning of time, from a child on into marriage partners, on into children in their lives and family life, we're constantly bombarded with a no and a yes. We're constantly bombarded, do I do this and suffer the consequences? 
or do I do this and enjoy the benefits? And so the right thing, yes or no. And so we're, we understand the conditioning of obedience from the smallest child to the oldest adult. So let me ask you this. How about you today? Your example today. How are you doing in the area of yes and no? It's not a question to answer out loud. It's a question to think about. To think about how you and I together are doing when it comes to our obedience level. And are we a good example towards those around us? Do people see something in our life that tells them the reason why we do the yeses and refuse the noes is not because we want to just be a righteous person doing the right thing in life, but we do it because we're in love with Jesus. And we're in love with Him, and by being in love with Him, we therefore want to exemplify the character that's been transplanted into us, which is the character of God, and the Holy Spirit that's alive, that's being housed in this bodily temple. And we exemplify the Holy Spirit and the work of God in our life through attitude and character. And that attitude and character produces the right action. So obedience is not just about action. It's more about a matter of the heart. As it was with the disciples as they stood there before the Sanhedrin and said, we're not here to obey men, we are here to obey God. It had nothing to do with the action of their life. It had all to do with their devotion unto God, their love for God. They were committed to God. They were committed to the task. They were committed to, to doing for God in a servant's attitude and a servant's heart. And as a result, the people saw their action as being a threat to the Sanhedrin. So they wanted to stop their obedience in action. The disciples were talking about their attitude and character. You can put us in jail and keep us there, and if we don't float out of there this time, we're still going to love him and we're still going to obey him because our mind and our heart is already aligned with the mind and the heart of God. Obedience is about the alignment of your will and my will to God. That's what matters. Obedience in itself. Now, I love this statement. Think of this. Every child of God is a masterpiece from the Creator. Every child of God is a masterpiece from the Creator, not a created being to work on becoming a masterpiece. We're not, it is not up to us to become the masterpiece. It is up to God to do that. Many years ago, when Thomas Kincaid was alive, Renee and I was just um, probably, he's the painter of light, if you don't know him uh, and know his work, even though the studio still goes on today. But Thomas Kincaid had an a artistic way of drawing out light in every one of his paintings. And he created that and became the artistic master of the painter of light. And we bought a painting, and there was, on that painting was actually brushstroke highlighted the light areas of the painting. 
And when you put a, a spotlight like this is on me on that painting and you cut off all the other lights, the illumination that comes off that painting is amazing. And so, you know, when I look at that, is nothing that, that we can do to create that masterpiece. Now think of this, God, God has a blank canvas and every one of us are the beginning part of that blank canvas. We would like to produce all of this on the canvas ourselves and to create the beauty. But it's not up to us to create our own masterpiece on that canvas. When our heart and our attitude is in line with the heart and the mind of God, when our will is in line with God's will, it's like another stroke, another highlighting on the canvas that God is creating this beautiful masterpiece. And so it's not up to us to create by doing the right thing and living the right righteous life. It is about us committing our life to God, righteousness put on our account, and as a result of a heart being in tune with Him, we therefore want to do the right thing. And each time we do is another brushstroke on the canvas. Because He's creating for us, he, every child of God is a masterpiece from the Creator. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, it's a very familiar passage of Scripture. You may even have it memorized. For by the grace you are saved through faith, and it is not of, of yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast, for we are His creation. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. You hear that, that verse says? We're saved not from the work we do. We're saved from the master. We're saved from the creator. We're saved because we give our heart and our mind and our will to God. We give him our allegiance. We give him our devotion. We confess our sin. We are saved because of that grace. And it's not of works and it's not as many works we can put together. It's not about living the good life. It's not about doing all the good, good things, although that is a part of being a Christian. It's not about doing those things to earn salvation. It's about committing our life by the grace of God. We are His creation. We are His masterpiece. Now, are there some scriptures that can give us some examples of various ones who are obedient and had good results? And was it all about their action or was it all about their commitment level to the Lord God? I'm glad you asked me that question because I do have a few scriptures I'm going to give you. It, one of them is, is Moses. I was thinking about it in Exodus. You know, you've heard me say I love the character of Moses. Moses is a wonderful character study. And I challenge you if, you, if you're just at a point where you're saying, you know, I don't know how to study this or that, just get out the book of Exodus and trace all the scriptures that relate to Moses and just study the character of Moses. 
And there are several books that were written. Charles Swindoll, Chuck Swindoll has written books and actually has a book entitled Moses, The Character of Moses. You can find other books that can aid you along. And you will discover that you, that you will find not only a complimentary to King David, he is a man after God's own heart. You will see that in Moses. We know that Moses failed. We know that David failed. But it does not change even at the end of his life that he was so bent and determined and committed and in love with Jehovah God. So Moses is an example. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 4 through 14, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. So this is the burning bush experience. And he grabs Moses' attention, and Moses turns his attention to the bush, and he begins to have conversation with the fire. Here am I, he answered. Do not come closer, he said. God said, take off your sandals, or take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors and I know about their sufferings. I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from the land to a good and spacious land a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Boy, that's a mouthful. The Israelites cry for help as has come to me, and I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore go, and I'm sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And he answered, God answered, I will certainly be with you, and this will be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Then Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is your name? What should I tell them? And God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And so here is one example of Moses. Moses has reluctancy from the start of how he's going to be used as a servant of God as you and I would be very reluctant as well. But in the course of the conversation that he had with um, God, the conversation between God and Moses kind of opened up the heart of Moses to be able to see the vision that God had granted the vision was nothing to do with Moses. Believe it or not, it has nothing to do with Moses. This is all about the freedom, the liberation, and the restoration of an entire nation of people coming back to God. And Moses was the one who is going to be the servant and is going to aid the process along. 
And as a result of that, Moses becomes obedient unto his calling. And the calling is to do as God had commanded him to do. But again, you go back to, is it about action here? No. Moses and God have conversations and it's not until Moses yields his spirit and his heart and his attitude and his character, it's not until he makes that yield known before he actually begins to do the action. If it was all about action, then Moses would have said, okay, here I go, boom, I'm gone. But it's, first of all, his heart has to be reconciled unto the heart of God. And obedience, when it matters, is about our heart being reconciled, our will being reconciled unto the will of God. Not that God has to be reconciled to us, but we have to be reconciled to Him. And as a result, that's when obedience follows. All right, let's look at another example. Let's look at Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Now, if you're not so keen to like Moses and his character, then go to the study of Abraham and study Abraham throughout the book of Genesis and look at the scriptures in your study. Again, there are books that are written about the character of Abraham that can aid you along from wonderful authors. And I think uh, David Jeremiah as well as Chuck Swindoll and others have written books. Um, and there's book studies about uh, Abraham and Sarah and Isaac. And you'll find character being uh, displayed in so many beautiful ways. But looking at Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 in verse 2 and then verse 5 and 6. But Abram, before his name was changed, but Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? All right, in verse 5 and 6. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars. And if you're able to count them, then he said to them, your offspring will be that numerous. Hmm. And Abram believed in God and he and God credited to him as righteousness. Okay, in Genesis chapter 22, verses one through three. In Genesis 22, verses 1 through 3, after these things, God tested Abraham. Notice the name change. And he said to him, Abraham, here am I, he answered. Take your son, he said, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you about. So early in the morning, Abraham got up, saddled up the donkey, took him, with, took him two of his young men, and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place that God had told him about. On the third day, hmm, so, much, so much comparison here, isn't it? About a son whom you love, sacrifice for all, and then the third day. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham, in verse 5, said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship and then we'll come back to you. Notice what he said. We are going over there to worship. He didn't say we're going over there to be obedient servants and I'm going to do as God told me to do. He said, I'm going over there to worship and then we'll come back to you. And he goes on in, in verses 11 through 12. But the angel of the Lord called to him, called to Abraham 
from heaven and he said, Abraham, Abraham. And he replied, here am I. What else is he going to do when somebody calls from heaven? Here am I. Then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son from me. You see what happened? It's not about the doing. It's about the heart being reconciled to the heart of God and seeing the vision of God, understanding the will of God, the mind reoriented, the character transplanted, and from that we respond in obedience. It's about Abraham getting his heart right with God. It's about Moses getting his heart right with God before anything ever happened. And then let's look at Jonah. Now, if you want a fascinating study of character, you could also do a, a study of that of Jonah. Jonah is a wonderful example of what God can do when a life has been committed and submitted unto the Lord God. And as a result of that, uh, things happen in a wonderful sense when the heart and the mind of God are connected together. And Jonah is one of those. In Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and then over into Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. In verse chapter 1, 1 through, 1 through 3, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their wickedness has confronted me. However, Jonah got up to flee to Tarsh from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare. He went down into to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. So you see, Jonah's running here. You know, just like Moses was questioning God, how can this be? How can I ever free this nation of people from Egypt? How could Abraham ever think that he could ever be a, a recipient of an heir at 100 years of age and then to take his son to the mount? How in the world could these guys do what God had commanded them to do? And we see Jonah in action here is running. He's running. All right, things change. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up. That should sound familiar. That's what he's already said. Get up once. Now he's saying, get up twice. Get up. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. So Jonah got up, went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now Nineveh was an extremely large city, a three-day walk. There's three again. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, in 40 days Nineveh will be overthrown. So it goes on. And he gives the warning. So we see what happens in Jonah's life. So a lot happens because, you know, there is, there is there's a fish involved in this encounter <laughs> that, that gets his attention. And he's waiting for the big burp, and it came. And when that big burp came, he was able to see once again. So it, there came a period of time what the heart of Jonah had to be reconciled unto the heart of God his will had to be in line with God's will. The character, the mind reorienting, character transplanting experience happened from God's, God's work towards Jonah. And when Jonah got it 
and saw the vision of God, then he was able to go to the city of Nineveh. So do you see what it's about? It's not about doing the right thing. It's about the heart of the person getting connected to the heart of God. And when that happens, the right thing follows. No more running, no more questioning, and no more doubt. It's now connecting to Lord God and doing as commanded. And now let's look one last example in that of Paul, Apostle Paul, in Acts chapter 9, uh, verses 1 through 6. In Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, uh, we see another great example. Meanwhile, Saul, before his name was changed to Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that he found any who belonged to the way. That way is Christianity. Either men or women, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. But get up, there's another, get up and go. Get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And we know what happens. You know, becomes a period of time that he is blinded and he is at the total mercy of someone else who's taking care of him and it wasn't until he was able to see God that he could see people. That he, could, he, he took, took on the vision of God and he was able to see what God was wanting him to do and Jesus changed his life. Again, it was about Saul's life being reconciled unto the heart of God and unto the will of God when God transplanted his mind and transplanted his character so that Paul, Saul could become Paul and see what God had for him to do in life. Again, it has nothing to do with the action of Paul. It has all to do with the action of God. It's about God creating the masterpiece. We're not creating our own. It's about God putting the brush strokes of light into our lives to make us illuminate and become the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And as a result of that commitment to God, he pushes us forward and he tells us to get up and go. And we do that. And as a result of getting up and go, we realize it's now about following his will and it becomes the matter of obedience. That's powerful. I'm always, I'm, I was taught from a child, you do the right thing, you benefit the good. Don't grab that hot stove or it will burn you. No, no, no. My mom and dad taught me it's all about doing the right thing. Same in marriage. It's always about doing the right thing. But when we get to the point it has nothing to do with action and it has all to do with the character, the attitude, and the will of the person being in line with the character and the will and the action of the other, then things begin to happen and obedience takes place, submission happens, yielding happens, and as a result, we therefore want to do 
the right thing. So what do all these have in common? Moses, Abraham, Jonah, and Paul. What do all these have in common? First of all, they were resistant at the beginning. After they got hold and saw what God had for their life, and they committed themselves to the calling of God, we see, their, second of all, their heart and their mind becomes all centered around the powerfulness of the heart and the mind of God. What did all these experience after they yielded to God? So we see resistance and yielding. And what's the result of all these four, these four that we mentioned, Moses, Abraham, Jonah, and Paul, what is the result? What, what did they experience after they yielded to God? Success. We saw them do exactly what God had commanded them to do. So it's no longer about the obligation of being obedient. It's about the joy of wanting to be obedient. Big difference. As a child, I'm obligated to not grab a hold of that hot stove. Not only am I probably going to be popped for doing it, I'm going to have to deal with the scar of the burn. But when I get to the point to where I want to do that thing that's pleasing because of my love relationship with my mom and my dad, then it takes on a whole different perspective. It's no longer about trying to not to, to avoid, the, it's not about avoiding consequences, it's now about doing what I'm wanting to do to honor and respect and love my parents. And we get to that point. Sometimes it takes us into our 20s and 30s to grab it. <laughs> Sometimes we get it at age 12. You know, it's just different for each person. And so you and I together, the great thing about this message is not to leave here thinking that I've got to do the righteous things in life in order to become the masterpiece of God. No, the, the, the whole lesson, the whole message is all about the yielding of our heart to God and as a joyful celebration, we want to do the right thing and we want to please the Father. Not because we fear the consequences, but because we relish in the joy of the benefits. And that's a big difference. We don't do things because of fear. We do things because of love and gratitude. And so when our hearts are in, in response to the love and the gratitude, the yielding and devotion, then as a result of that, we understand and we see the vision that God has for our life and the joy of living and serving Him every day. So when obedience matters, it's all about the heart not about the action. And when we get it, this is what happens. He pulls, the, he pulls the canvas to the side. He stood at it on that easel stand and he's got you and I right there on that canvas. And every time we are in agreement with the heart of God and our spirit is yielded unto the spirit of God, it's almost as if he takes the, the paintbrush and he adds a little bit more highlighting of light so that we will illuminate more and more 
and we become his, his workmanship created unto good works, for good works, not because of them. And it's all by the grace of God. So all these, these four, as well as you and I, we all have in common. When we yield, we benefit. And when we, what we benefit is a vibrant, loving, graceful relationship with the Lord God. So I've said all this today to ask you this question. Are you yielded to God? Or are you all about doing the right thing? Two different questions, isn't it? And you understand it a little bit different. I understand it a little bit different because I've been conditioned to believe that obedience is about doing good works. But obedience is about unto good works because of my yielding in the grace of God. So will you yield your heart to God? For those who have never committed their life to Christ, how do you do that? Well, I'll tell you how I did it. It was on a Thursday evening and their invitation was given in that church. An altar call was made and I came to the altar and I said to the pastor who was standing there, I said, I want this Jesus that I hear preached today. And he said to me, what is the one thing that you need more in your life than ever? I said, Jesus. He said, then pray this prayer. Lord, I give you my heart. I ask you to save me from my sin. Thank you for saving me. Beautiful prayer. The angels of heaven become silent as the prayer is prayed. But as the prayer ends, there's a celebration of joy beyond measure over one sinner who repents and calls on God. So will you call on God today? Those who are listening at home, I beg of you to call on God. No longer live in fear. No longer live in questioning. No longer live in doubt. But commit your life to the Lord God and watch what happens with your life. You'll understand it's not about doing good things anymore. It's about yielding your heart to God and the product are the good things that follow. So what is your commitment today? Will you yield to Him? Will you cry out to Him and watch Him do something amazing with your life. Because when you do that, you'll understand what the character said. We will go over here, as, I, as Abraham says, we will go over here and we will worship God. Worship takes on a whole new meaning when our heart is connected and yielded to God. Here, I'm, here I am, Lord, to worship you today. Will you yield your spirit and worship him? Father, we thank you. We thank you that you give the greatness of your love and your power and your might. And you remind us over the truths that's within those scriptures and the examples that follow. And there's many, many more. And we thank you that we understand 
what you're doing in our life. We understand, first of all, we thank you that you are the creator and you are the creator of our lives to become the masterpiece for you. Father, when we, when we mark up and scar that canvas with the disobedience, Father, forgive us. Please erase those marks and those wounds that could damage the masterpiece. Help us to understand the freedom that we have when we confess our life before you and we know that you resume your work as we get back in tune with you. Thank you for the wonderful opportunity and the joy of yielding our spirit and being obedient unto you. We thank you, Father, for loving us as we are. In your name that we pray, amen.
You're my God. You're altogether lovely, altogether worthy, altogether wonderful.